the great thing about Peter Beardsley, the footballer, was that whenever you watched him, however much you paid for your ticket, you knew that you were going to get value based on him doing something impish, creative, daring, anarchic, skillful. To find out that he was rejected by Newcastle, that he went to Vancouver in Canada at a time when it must have felt like changing galaxy, never mind continent, and to ask him what the heck happened. And then we told stories about Independence Day, George Best, Ron Atkinson, and... A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How Harry Redknapp ruined his Old Trafford career. You'll go a long, long way, this or any other season, to hear better football stories right from the heart of this game. Sometimes it can be a dark heart, sometimes it can be a beautiful heart, sometimes comedic. And Peter telling his own story transfixed me. I hope that the eccentricity, the joy, the fun transmits itself into this big interview. At Liverpool... I thought he was the extra element that allowed that club to do unbelievable things, passing moves that is the closest I've seen to the Pep Guardiola Barcelona. And Peter Beardsley has been a theme across this big interview series is that he's one of those players from the modern time. I said the same to Gordon Strachan and meant it, that he could easily have fitted into the Spain side, which won three straight tournaments. And Beardsley could easily have played and Andres Iniesta role in Pep Guardiola's Barcelona. That's how good I think he was. It turned out that he's also a gent, that he passionately loves talking about the game, that he thinks the Spain players, the Barcelona and Real Madrid players, who I've thrilled watching during my time in this country, are footballers that still inspire him. He's like a young kid when it comes to the ball. He continues playing. In fact, just before we sat down with Peter Beardsley, played a 90-minute game in the indoor centre at the Newcastle United training ground. It was an absolute refreshing joy to speak to this unadulterated man of football and to hear how street football, just like for Jinky Jones, Edgar Davids, Dennis Burkamp, Johan Cruyff, street football helped turn him into somebody who'd go and live the dream with Newcastle, with Liverpool, for England. And you'll go, again, a long, long way to hear a better story than Peter Beardsley, the shopping bags, the penny floater football and the bridge near his home. Sit back and, and lap up this fantastic football life told by Peter Beardsley. 
Football isn't necessarily a sport worldwide known for its articulacy. Nevertheless, I think the next hour and a bit is going to be full of things which change your view on that. While we talk, there are a couple of Anglo-Saxon words which burst out. So, if you're listening to this in loudspeaker with kids around, be aware. Be very aware. Peter Beardsley, welcome to the big interview and thank you very much indeed. Absolute pleasure it, for me. It started very well because we've seen some lovely skills on an <laughs> indoor pitch. We've had some fantastic shepherd's pie. But I'm going to make the first comparison of the day, which I don't want you to drop the shoulder and shrug me off on. You, when you were playing, always, always now evoke, when I think about how you played, the footballers who've made my life so much better in Spain, whether it be Iniesta or Silva or Messi or any of that series of footballers who are utterly comfortable on the ball and in a crowd of players when you can't even see a way out yourself emerge with the ball. I, I want to ask you if that brilliant ability you had with your dancing Fred Astaire feet with the ball tied to a foot, did that come from the sweat box? And what was the sweat box? The sweat box was an amazing place that was like, it's hard to explain in terms of the size of this room that we're in now. This is probably, I don't know, 12 metres by 12 metres. Yeah. The sweat box would have been 30 metres wide by 40 metres long, maximum. And it literally was a sweat box. If you look at the floor that we're on now, that's what the floor was. We actually played on this type of floor. I couldn't even explain Some what parquet, this is. parquet, wood, yeah. Wood, yeah. wooden slats. Wooden floor, absolutely. And it was like, you almost felt like you were bouncing on it. It was like incredible, honestly. And it was a sweat box. And where we're sat, Graham, we are sat bang in the middle of where I lived and where Wars and Boys Club is. Literally, genuinely. I didn't know that, so right. I've lived a mile down this road. Obviously, if you went out the training ground now, and then Wars and Boys Club is a mile down the other road. And what I used to do every night, I used to go from my house with a ball at my feet and cause probably loads of car crashes, <laughs> all the way to Warzone Boys Club, play me football, and all the way back with me ball. You're talking dribbling up dribbling, and down the, yeah, the absolutely. street? Absolutely. Everywhere I went, people of Long Benton, where I was born and bred, and obviously that's where I'm talking, basically used to see me with a ball going for shopping for my mum and dad. You know, I used to get the, the shopping run. I had two older brothers who wouldn't go, and uh, I got the job, so I'd be carrying carrier bags and kicking the ball, and, and it just... It was my life, and, and I don't mean that in a negative way, because it was amazing, and I wouldn't swap with David. I really wouldn't, you know, and coming from school, and I look at kids, and even my own kids, having gone through school, doing homework every night, it never felt as though we had homework, either that or I didn't do it. Yeah. And I'm really not sure which, but uh, it was an incredible thing, the sweatbox. See, when you're, see, when you've got a shopping bag full of Campbell's soup cans and a shopping bag full of potatoes and bread and whatever it might be, and you're, you're running with a ball, is that you? If you can go back to that moment, saying to yourself, I, I never want to be without the ball, or were you already kind of practising for something that lay ahead, even if it was being better at Walls End Boys Club, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, I always dreamt of being a footballer, but at that stage, never ever thought I would. I never ever thought I would get to play at any level. You know, so eventually when the chance comes, it was incredible. But just kicking the ball, my routine was like, you imagine... a a garden every 10 yards and obviously mm. a front gate. There would obviously be a wall in between and that was it, like two bounces off the wall and then on the other side of the gate, another two bounces. And, and I used to have a, 
like a coordination thing. It had to be the same as in two bounces. It sounds really sad, but if I messed up, I had to go back. You know what's, do you know what <laughs> isn't sad? I, I, I was useless for the ball, but you reminded me of my childhood. I, I had an OCD thing if I was practising with the ball. I read in Shoot magazine when I was quite young, Colin Bell talking about how he got really good with just a tennis ball. He'd kick it onto a roof, a slanted roof, kick it, and then he, he would let it drop down. And he would, right, half this time it's got to be thigh left, volley right, and, and, or chest and then head, and he did that with tennis ball. So I thought... Well, that would be a good thing to do. But I did the same as you. I was like, well, challenge yourself. And if I, don't, if I do it, okay, but I don't do what I'd set myself to do, I'd be furious with myself. Well, there was a bridge. Obviously, the bridge is still there now. And it's funny, I drive past the bridge every day. Basically, it'd probably be about, I don't know, 12 metres high, something like that. So the steps up, and then there's a the middle bit over the train lines, and then obviously down the other side. But I would never pick the ball up. No. No, no, I would always kick it. <laughs> never, ever had the ball in my hand. You know, so I'd walk into a shop and I'd be paying for stuff and obviously I'd have bags. The ball would always be on the floor. I never, ever picked my ball up. Did you sleep with it? Not quite, I don't think, but I always knew where it was. It was almost like, sounds stupid, but if there was a fire, where's my ball? You know, people obviously, teddies, whatever you want to call them, but, but yeah, the ball. The ball was like something that was my life, to be fair. What did that ball look and feel like? It was, a, it was called a, basically a penny floater in our day. It was like a plastic ball that I wouldn't know what it cost, but it almost sometimes you think it's got a mind of its own. And it would just be like, on a windy day, it was more difficult, but you almost saw that as a challenge. You know, the more difficult it is, obviously. It's funny, I was talking to one of our coaches yesterday because when we train and obviously a ball will go somewhere, I almost become a ball boy, just naturally, not, not in a negative way. And then we'll have a clump of balls where we're, we're feeding from, and I'll like, I might be 50 yards away and I will always ping the ball back from where I am or the side volley. So I pick it up and I volley it and it sounds bigger. Nine times out of 10, it'll go where I go. And people are like, they look at you like they're surprised, but it's practice. Mm -hmm. It really, that's as simple as that, you know. And, and I keep telling them, you know, not because of me, but practice. And I talk about Messi all the time. He doesn't get that because he doesn't want to practice. He looks as though he wants to play football. I saw him in the Champions League final, Graham. You ever saw him at Wembley mm -hmm. when they beat Man United. Mm -hmm. I saw him and Danny Alves about 40 yards apart, volleying the ball, keeping it up, volleying it back. Wow, it was one of the most pleasurable things I've ever seen on a football field. And that was just warming up. Do you know, I, I knew that one of my difficulties would be like making you accept that there's quality comparisons between you and Messi and you and Iniesta because uh, you're quite a humble man, but there are. I grew up watching you. I spent my life watching these guys, which is exactly what you said. It's ultra pleasure. It makes you feel really lucky to be in this profession, really lucky to be in this profession. But aside from how much he practised or practises, he's, he's the same as you've just described now. Needs to know where the ball is, absolutely needs to be doing something with the ball all the time. And I don't think all footballers are like that. No, no, I, I would agree. I, I have to be honest, I look at a lot of them and they almost not worry about the ball. Yeah. You know, they want to be in a gym. Yes. They want to make themselves stronger physically. You know, and I understand to a point that is the way the game's gone. But if you can't deal with the football, you know, forget it. There's some I see who the, the ball's an enemy. Absolutely. No, no. It's funny. When I first came to Newcastle, having been obviously to, to Vancouver and Carlisle, and Arthur Cox said to me, I'm going to give you a race with this ball across the field. So I start running with my ball and he doesn't move. What's going on here? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he picks his ball up and he just boots it. 
So I've run 70 metres across the pitch and he's just booted this ball. And he said, I never said we had to take the ball with us. Mm. And it was just a lesson for me that like, obviously his ball went quicker than mine, but the fun I had running across there was more fun than actually just booting a ball. And that for me is the big thing where I look at some people and obviously it's in the makeup where they're better without the ball. It sounds really yes. stupid, but that is a fact of life. You know, there are certain players in the world that are better without it. And, and we'll come back to the fact that, I, it was, I don't know, I shouldn't be giving my opinion because we're here to talk to you, but I reckon that football is a really broad church and that there's a use for players who can do that sometimes if they complement. Absolutely. What, if you've got six Messi's or a Messi and two Chavis and an Iniesta in your team, guys who are, are really good without the ball because they're in the right place or they can break things up. That can be quite useful for you Absolutely. too. But I don't want to lose sight of the sweat box because I thought the sweat box would be a way to explain how you became such an agile, dancing, confident, balanced footballer. You educated me that it was the street that prepared you for the sweat Absolutely. box, which prepared you yeah, for yeah. In the sweat box, what were you doing? How many people were there? And what, what was the atmosphere like? The atmosphere was amazing. So there would be a pool table in and around the sweat box. There would be a dartboard. You imagine to your right as you walk in the door, there'll be the sweat box down the stairs. So there's two sets of stairs. So there would be two teams playing each other. And you never went down the same set of stairs. So if my team would go down this set, the opposition would go down the other. And then the other teams that obviously were in the leagues would be either playing pool, playing darts, having a bit of fun, whatever. A lot of them at the drinks machine, getting drinks, crisps. It never matter what you're at in them days, you know, you're never worried about, like, can I have another bag of crisps? It just wasn't in your makeup. So it was just an amazing thing. And, and basically, in my time, the winning team used to stay on. Yep. So that was the big incentive, you know, you never wanted to be off the pitch, you know, because at the end of the day, that's how you learn, that's how you. And when you walked home on a night, as I did with a ball up the road, I would like be disappointed if I if I hadn't done something that I would look back at the game and I would analyse it on the way up the road. Why didn't I pass there or why didn't I dribble there when I passed to the wrong person who sometimes you pass and you know when you pass the ball, it passed to the wrong person. You know, it, it, but you do it because it's the right thing to do. And that for me was something that I learned where you know like a certain person. So imagine I'm playing next to a, a person that technically isn't the best but I know he can strike a decent ball. Mm -hmm. I would try and put the ball in the space for him so he doesn't have to change stride, he doesn't have to think, he doesn't have to do anything difficult. And that is me all over in terms of always passing forward, always thinking, where does he want the ball? Where does the defender want the ball? You know, and, and, and that type of thing. You know, I talk to our kids now about passing the ball past the defender. So mentally, once he turns around, he's thinking, wow, that's 10, 15 yards, I'm not going to run that far. And mentally, he turns off. And that for me is the big thing about when watching Barcelona, they very rarely pass to the man. Yeah. They always pass to the space. And that for me is a, an incredible talent. And, which, and to have that brain to know where people want the ball. Which takes them not one step, but two steps ahead of too many <coughs> in our country. Because Absolutely. I still see professional footballers putting the ball either behind yeah. or in such a manner that the stride has to be checked. No, no, absolutely. And if it's into the path, it's, it does something that damages the opponent. But... You can say that now after a world-class career. When the hell did that begin to occur to you in your brain age, I don't know, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15? When the hell did that start to filter in? I would say, obviously I couldn't tell you exactly when, but I would say as an 11-year-old, it was definitely in my brain, without a doubt. And that's whether it's nice what you keep saying, that obviously I was a good player, but when I look at it, 
it's your brain that makes you a player. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a talent, no mm -hmm. doubt about it. And everybody, you know, you look at, I keep referring to dogs. You can teach dogs how to do tricks. You know, you can teach people all day long to mm -hmm. pass a ball, dribble, whatever, but you can't teach them to have a brain. Mm -hmm. And that brain is special. You know, whether you're gonna run fast, run slow, you know, you know you're about to be tackled, you stop, change direction, you know, that is something you like. I watch uh, Snooker a bit, Ronnie O'Sullivan in particular, I imagine, and basically he's three shots ahead. I'm three passes ahead in my brain. I don't always get the ball, but I'm thinking if that ball is going to come to me in the next second, three seconds, whatever, it's going there. And that, for me, makes the players a stand I'm so glad you raised that, because I know there are players that can do that, but to be able to talk about it is, is difficult. We, we had a challenge. We, we sat down with Chrissy Wardle a couple of months ago. We, we knew we were going to enjoy it. Yeah. But we talked about, was it fair on tape to ask him to explain his art? Because a lot of people who are not just good, but phenomenally good, can do it. It's natural. And they can't talk about it. They can't break it down. They don't know what they do. And it's, they might be the best in the world, but they can't break it. And I'm willing to bet, now this is me estimating, but I'm willing to bet that Messi will be like that. He won't be able to break it down and say in the future, this is what you do, because it just flows from him. Whereas Xavi, analytically, yeah. probably will. And Chris could. Chris taught us about the one-on-one -on -one where you yeah, yeah. show one way or how close you've got to be. And he broke it down like it was the Open University. It was phenomenal to listen to. But I was reading Dennis Bergkamp talking about exactly what you said there, that he could see, not one, two, three passes in advance and made a comparison with a quarterback in American football where you're being rushed, yeah, yeah. it's crazy, you're going to be hurt, but you've got to put the ball about 50 yards between two sets of hands and find your guy, yeah. and your guy isn't there yet, and he's going to get there for another three seconds. And that's what I see when I see passing like you're talking about. Yeah, it, it, it sounds really big ahead what I'm going to say, but when I first came to Newcastle, Second time around, when Kevin Keegan was yep. actually the manager, I played with him obviously first time. When I came second time, John Beresford tells this story about how, when I first came, Kevin said he will make a difference to you, to every player. He'll make a difference to you. So when I first came back, and to be fair, probably wasn't great, but I was doing what I did all my life. So John Beresford's a left back, 10 yards in front of him, there's loads of space, there's no pressure. I would pass the ball in front of him. That ball, probably for the first six weeks, would go into touch. Basically, he was like saying, well, he's not as good as I thought he was going to be. But then he realised, and he tells the story a lot, where basically that's where I should be. Mm -hmm. And then he started to realise, well, he ain't going to pass the ball to me. He's going to pass it to where I should be. And so that's what I always did. I always passed it where the man should be. And there would be times when it would go out. You know, I ended up at Hartlepool, basically without being big I looked an average player because I was on a different wavelength and that sounds really big headed but that's the way I thought you know but I still did the same thing that I would do for Alan Shearer or Les Ferdinand and yeah. Nicole Guy Wimicker I knew where they wanted the ball and I was almost trying to play the game for them as in that's where you should be they couldn't grasp it and obviously made me look average and I don't mean that in a cruel way because it wasn't there will fault. be I'll tell you two things now I'm really pleased I, I've not an up down relationship with Kevin but as a Scot I didn't really like what he was doing to me as, <laughs> as I was growing up. He was writing and shoot every week. And yeah, he, was, absolutely. he wasn't slow about taking the mickey out of us, <laughs> particularly after a 5-0 or a, whatever it might be. So it took me a little while to learn to like Kevin and then meeting him with one or two exchanges of maybe some people with heated points of view. But then two or three times I met him and he was so interesting, so likeable, so charming, so enthusiastic about football. Absolutely. That, that won me over. 
But what you've said there is what a good bit of vision. You proved him right when he said to them, he's going to improve, not the team, you individually. What a good bit of vision from Kevin that is. I have to say, it was funny because when I first came back, he said to me, I want you to do what I did for you 10 years ago. <laughs> so in 83, yeah. he, he was obviously at Newcastle, yeah. I signed and I was a young kid. And basically he was the leader. In a nice way. He wasn't nasty, aggressive, but he led the team. Mm-hmm. You know, him and Terry McDermott in particular. So anyway, when I came back in 93, I was 35. And he said, uh, you know, you need to tell the chairman if he asks you, you're only 31. And it was like, really, not a con, but obviously he had to convince him that he wanted me. Exactly. Well, it's just yeah. putting the con in convince, yeah. isn't it? And, and it was quite funny nice. because obviously <laughs> when I played, the chairman used to come in the dressing room after the game and he said to me, you're not bad for 30. <laughs> but it was just like really weird. But what I was going to say was we, we actually, so in the first six weeks that I was at Newcastle, Kevin used to criticise me. But not in a nasty way, mm-hmm. but he was saying, come on, Pedro, stop playing one touch and like, whatever, whatever, whatever it was, like, but not in a nasty way. Uh-huh. And it was like, that's what you want me to do. But then six weeks later, he called me into his office and he said, do you know what I'm doing, Pedro? When I actually say to you, don't do this, don't do that. When I half time, you're always the first one I pick on. He said, well, I'm doing that because you're the best player. Mm-hmm. And if I do that to you, I can mm-hmm. do it to anybody. I said, well, it would have been nice if you told me six weeks ago. Because <laughs> I just, like, honestly, I thought, am I really doing that bad? And he said, you've been doing terrific. He said, but I start with you. Yeah. And then whoever I talk to, Tino, Espera, David, Genola, I can talk to anybody. Yeah. And I can say anything to anybody. Not in a nasty way, but no. he said, you're the main man. And it happened to me when I played. He said, I would be told off certain people, you can't do this. But then they would automatically go straight on to somebody else and say, basically, he's not doing it. You have to do it. He was incredible. I have to say he was, he treated me like a king. And what he used to say to me was, just go and drop hand grenades. You go anywhere you want on that field. But when you go there, so if you go in the left back position as in defending, Mm -hmm. get on the ball, you have to make a pass that's going to open up the game for us. That type of thing. Or if you go in the right back position or whatever, you have to have an effect in the game. I don't want you just going there wasting your time. And he was just incredible. He just allowed me to do whatever. and it's nice what people say, but when you look at it, we just had an unbelievable team that just played unbelievable football. For our level, and I don't mean that in a cheeky way, when you look at an Arsenal, a Man United, a Man City, you know, Chelsea, there's an expectation. There wasn't in Newcastle. So what we did was just provide them with something unbelievable that they hadn't seen before. And that's why we were called the entertainers. And it's quite interesting. It's the 20th anniversary this year. And uh, it'll be nice because we're going to get back together and have a, a big dinner together. So, but before we jump into the entertainers, and, and we mustn't bypass another king, um, not King Kevin, but King Kenny. But did you grow up watching a guy who I had as a hero, Jinky Smith? Did yeah, Jinky Smith. He was my favourite. Ah, I like 100%, that. One hundred percent. The nutmegs. At Petodri, oh. when I, at Aberdeen, my dad took me aged five or six to watch the reserves, yeah. and Jinky um, was a big player, but he was coming back from injury. We had a big Sakon. dinner at Wars End Boys Club, oh, sorry, four Wars End Boys Club at the Gosford Park Hotel in Newcastle, October, November, and we have one every year, and it was the 50th anniversary, and uh, Steve Bruce was the guest speaker, and was brilliant. Because of obviously being a manager for so long, he yeah. hadn't been to many of the dinners, and that was just look at the draw, yep. but he was there, and he was speaking. But Jinky Jimmy was there with uh, the, the first cup team, so Bob Moncur and people like that. Wynn Davis. Yeah, Wynn Davis and, and all them. And, and he signed a shirt for me. 
He was that much of a, of a hero for oh, you? Oh, yeah. He, he was absolutely my hero. I absolutely loved him. You know, we talking to you on, on the way in here about nutmegs and <laughs> he just did it because it was the best thing to do. He yeah. was never like horrible about it. Or, Not like, humiliation. Yeah, exactly. It was for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. It was the best thing to do. And to be fair, I loved him. I loved Jinky Jimmy. He, he was my hero, 100%. He was my favourite Newcastle So if player. I remember right, he'd have come just after the Fairs Cup team. So the last major, major trophy that Newcastle won, I guess, was yeah. 69. 69, yeah, yeah. The UEFA Cup, we would yeah, call yeah. it now, Fairs Cup then. Yeah, yeah. You'd have been about... I was eight. If John Holt, yeah, but yeah. depending on who's telling the story, either eight or 13, as <laughs> Kevin would have it. So you were, you were actually eight. Eight when they won the first cup. Eight Absolutely. Or, no, eight, I'd never... eight or five. Yeah. Been, yeah. Did yeah. you go eight. see the game or no. were you allowed to? Is no. that impossible? I have to be honest, uh, Graham, I couldn't tell you the exact date, but my first game to watch in Newcastle Stadium, I would have been 12 or 13. I would say probably 72 or 73 maybe. And Frank Clark scored his first goal for Newcastle. He'd been here forever. Frank uh, Clark, Nottingham Forest, Forest yeah. European Cup absolutely. winner. Frank yeah, Clark. Absolutely. Yeah. They played Doncaster, they won 6 0. And that was the first game I ever went to. And he scored a goal. And the crowd just went wild. <laughs> and I, I, at the time, I didn't understand why. Yeah. I was saying, well, it's just a goal. Because at that stage, it was probably 4 0 or something. The crowd just went absolutely nuts. But obviously, I didn't realise that he played like something like 250 games hadn't scored a goal probably hadn't had a shot and it was just amazing so that was my first game and if you you remember the the Newcastle Nottingham Forest Cup tie that was uh, abandoned because of crowd trouble wasn't what you would call bad crowd trouble but obviously it got abandoned yeah but the the thing that was funny about that game was that basically I was queuing for a ticket overnight with my brother so we watched match of the day and then went to queue you mean overnight don't you oh yeah 100% sleeping bags and everything yeah absolutely so Watched match of the day, got a bus into town from where I am now, and uh, we went, queued, and honestly, we you only allowed one ticket each then. Yeah. So we got a ticket each, and he actually sold my ticket to his best mate. <laughs> and to be fair, not nice at the time. It is funny now. It is totally funny now. This is naming and shaming in, in action. But it worked out well, because I would have been yeah. in most of that trouble. Yeah. And obviously, it's amazing how things happen for a reason, because at the time, I was gutted. Wanted to go to the cup game and obviously, as I say, it got abandoned. Was banging in the middle of the trouble because it was all standing then. Yeah. It wasn't like I would have had a seat where there wouldn't have been any trouble. I was yeah. actually would have been banging yeah. in the middle of it. So in that sense, it was a... Age 12, 13. Yeah, it was a blessing in disguise. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I would have been 13 then, 1974. And then to go on and get to the final. And sadly, obviously, I couldn't go to the final. But probably and that was the Liverpool good. final? Yeah. The Keegan final. The that Keegan final. Absolutely. So I talked about things happening for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I remember him. I was, you know, we're not that different in age. And I remember there was a program called VIP then, hosted by Valerie Singleton. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the interview was Kevin Keegan. And, and Kevin hadn't been that long at Liverpool, I no, think, no. from, from no, no. Scunthorpe. No, absolutely. Yeah, Scunthorpe, yeah, 71. Signed I think by he Shankly. Went. Yeah, yeah. And then it, it felt to me at the time that it wasn't as much of a game as it should have been because Newcastle were actually closer to Liverpool than they proved. Yes. And if I remember correctly, one or two, I don't know if it was, I if it was Malcolm McDonald, I think maybe somebody in the Newcastle side had sounded, sounded off a little bit in the press and said, oh, we're going to... And, and Liverpool went right where... Was it, was it Supermax? It was definitely Supermax. 100%. <laughs> he was... We were going to win. He talked it up, you know, and obviously newspapers were big news then. You know, oh, yeah. So, he, oh, yeah, 100%. And they and pinned a, it on the dressing fan, room and everything. Would you, reading that, would you go, he's right, he's right? Yeah, well, or, or would you go, no, no. As a fan, I was thinking, I hope he's right. But like, I was thinking maybe a bit, a bit optimistic, a bit too much. But yeah, it almost, it, being 13, it almost passed me by that whether it was right or wrong. Yeah, yeah. 
But when I learned, obviously, going into being a professional footballer, you learn that you don't rally the opposition or wind them up or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Tell them. And to be fair, we were embarrassing. You know, it, when it, I look back in hindsight, it didn't it, come it, off, did it? It was a three nil going on seven eight. You know, three nil. It's daft as it sounds. Almost looked all right in the end. Even at my age, I could see that there was an edge and an aggression and a confidence and a determination about Liverpool that, that Newcastle didn't. It, there was some in this Newcastle side who were kind of looking around going, oh, yeah. oh look, yeah. look where It was almost like, embarrassing. Let's do them, let's do yeah, them, yeah. let's do them, let's no, do them. No, it, it almost was. And, and obviously they didn't want it to be like that, but it no. ended up being embarrassing. So look, I, I want to skip a little bit because there's a, I'm not going to say it out loud, but we've titled this section WTF. Because in retrospect, how the hell did so few people have faith in you? Because you're spotted at Wall's End by Newcastle. And then it doesn't happen. And then, you know, you're back and forward from that absolute 100% natural place for a northeast boy to end up Vancouver. It, uh, <laughs> what the hell no, was going on? It was incredible. It, uh, basically, obviously, I was playing for Carlisle. Bob yeah. Moncure was the manager, promoted me very quickly. Pop Robson, yeah. who presumably played in that first no, no, cup winning you, team absolutely. and was your dressing room no, companion. No. That must in, have felt... To be fair, Pop was the best volleyer of a ball I ever saw. Yeah. Both feet, yeah. you know, and you can you can see pictures all over, you know, in volume the ball and the technique and everything. And he did a lot for me, I have to say. But he came as a player coach, yeah. as I was leaving really, and he was the first person I went to for advice. Really, because I had the chance to go to Vancouver, and how it came about. Basically, Johnny Giles had seen me play against Mansfield, in an FA Cup tie, and Johnny Giles was the manager of Vancouver. I didn't saw me play know in the FA Cup, yeah. But he was looking at the Mansfield player. Their left winger, and uh, he was looking at him, and he wasn't great on the day uh -huh. without being horrible, and I apparently was. He said to his staff, "We'll have him." But then what he did was, four weeks later, five weeks later, we were playing Brentford. Chopper Harris was playing for Brentford, and it was down at Brentford. But I still uh, see the scars. Yeah, Vancouver Whitecaps were playing the Bishop Abbey, training the Bishop Abbey oh, yeah. for their yeah. pre-season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he came to watch me again, and I, I was lucky enough scored a goal, and uh, apparently played quite well. And that's how it came about. And uh, basically, he came to try and buy me. The fee was 250000 uh, to Carlisle, which was a lot of money in them Yeah. So 1981. But I'd never flown before. No. Genuinely never flown. Yeah. Sandra and I, my wife now, it's 35 years in a couple of months that we'll have been together. Basically, what happened was we weren't going to get married for like 15 months. Yeah. But the chance to go to Vancouver, the deal was that once Carlisle was safe from relegation, uh -huh. I could go to Vancouver. What happened was that that took about six weeks and Sandra's mum organised the wedding within four weeks. We got married four days before we went. Gosh. And it was incredible. So the night before I got married, we played Burnley in a league game at Turf Moor. My best man scored a hat-trick, Gordon Stanley Forth. So we went back and as you know, stag dues in them days <laughs> were the night before the wedding. Yes. So we went back, we went to uh, the Twisted Wheelers, it was called in them days. Had a few beers, not me. I never had a drink, never had a drink in my life. So. Went in there and then after that went, obviously did the wedding. And then on the Saturday, we lost at home to Swindon, but we were safe after that game. So on the Sunday, we flew down to London. And then on the Monday, we flew out to Vancouver. And neither of us had ever flown before. And it was incredible. It, it, was it must have seemed like a frontiersman. It, it must, I mean, what did you know about Canada? What did you know about Vancouver? Nothing. Presumably, number one, John Giles, given the name yeah, he had, was a massive dog. attraction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Peter Lorimer was a player coach. Well, listen, so, if anybody who's listening is too young to know, John had been 
the linchpin leader with Billy Bremner, that great lead side. He played at Manchester important. United as yeah, well. No, Wonderful, no. clever, tough footballer. Technically brilliant. Lorimer, uh, one of Scotland's greatest. Absolutely. Certainly brilliant at shooting. I don't know, would you, would you call him a... Not a winger, inside forward? Yeah, or yeah, no, he, was, he, he probably started off as a right winger. Yeah. But then, as you say, as later years call it, well, moved in, moved in a in. bit, yeah. And almost came like, a, when you were talking earlier about a quarterback, mm. he almost could ping a ball anywhere yeah. and put it on a sixpence. So he became a, a sort of a whole midfielder that could hit a ball 60, 70 yards, you know. So, yeah. And there were great people to be around. Roger Kenyon, who obviously... Yeah, yeah. You know, we had some unbelievable players. Dave Thomas... The winger of QPR, QPR, Everton, Ray Hankin, Alan Gosh. Taylor, who scored two for West Ham Ray in the Hankin, cup final. Ray Hankin, Leeds? Yeah, right? Leeds, yeah, yeah, Leeds yeah. Burnley. And uh, Alan Taylor, who scored two against Fulham in the cup final for against West Ham. West Ham yeah. Yeah, good. yeah, he was there. What kind of all-star team was Absolutely. this? Absolutely, Willie Johnson. But yeah, yeah, Willie Johnson. The cleanest Superstar. player I ever... Not. <laughs> he, <laughs> to be fair. He, he used to come to Pitotri with Rangers. Somebody was asking me today when we were playing games about... We've got a podcast out this day with David Proven. And I was showing... I was giving them clues and Willie Johnson was one of the guesses. And Willie could really, really, really play. In fact, Newcastle put Willie Johnson and Rangers out of the Fairs Cup in the semi-final. Ah, really? Willie played in that aware, game, huh? yeah, before the just dozy two-legged Fairs yeah, Cup yeah. thing. And Willie, Willie was a fantastic player, but boy, his game wasn't complete unless he left his studs on one of our oh, fullbacks. To be fair, we, we played in San Jose, I remember it, and he went to take a corner, and in them days in San Jose, the, the stadiums were really tight, and somebody leant over and offered him a beer. He had a drink of it, genuinely, 100%, and then crossed the ball and we scored. We scored from the corner. It was like, wow, has that just happened? It was you, like you incredible. See, if Scotland ever became a republic... That's the kind of person we'd elect as, oh, yeah, as leader. Absolutely. He'd be president absolutely. just for that incident. But the amazing thing was, Graham, the, the reason I ended up going to Manchester United was we played San Jose yeah. in San Jose, and George Best was playing George, for San Jose. Yeah. Yeah. I scored a hat-trick. It was American Independence Day, <laughs> July the 4th, and I scored a hat-trick, and he actually said to me after the game, George Best, what part of Canada are you from, son? And I honestly thought, wow, you see this? I said, I'm from Newcastle. Newcastle in England? I said, yeah. He went, you're kidding me. He said, I'm going to ring Man United. That's, That's what he actually said to me. He did. He rang Man United. Well, how did you feel went, in that moment? I mean, you must have been walking I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. Well, as he just said that, like, to be nice, he reiterated three or four times, I'm going to ring Man United. I'm really going to ring Man United. He now, was incredible. He would have been at that That was 81. Stage. So that was 4th of July, 81. Had Sexton gone? Was it was Ron Atkinson. Atkinson had already taken over. It was over. Ron Atkinson, yeah. And, and to be fair to Ron, he was, he was all right. And it came about because of that. And then he'd rang him. And then what happened was Man United came over for pre-season. And ah. they played on our AstroTurf. OK. And I scored a goal after 13 seconds. And Man United kicked off. The ball went back to Gordon McQueen. I put him under pressure. He fell over on the AstroTurf. And I scored after 13 seconds. <laughs> scored again later in the game. We won 3-1. Wait, wait, wait a sec. And then I in the future, up... I, I kind of have the aspiration of inviting... But Gordon, to one of these interviews. Yeah, yeah. Gordon, I'd like to make clear that neither of us are mocking the fact that you fell no, over no, in the absolutely. Astro-term. No, no. And to be fair <laughs> to him... I'm only kidding. Well, obviously, when I went back there, he was there. Yeah. Big go-go, and he, he was brilliant. And he said, it was because of me that you're here, by the fact that I fell over. On which subject? Here's your first quiz. Name the 11th player. The 10 are Bailey, Duxbury, Alberston, Wilkins, Moran... McQueen, Robson, Grimes, Stapleton, Moses, and? I'm guessing me. Peter Beardsley. Yeah, me one appearance against Bournemouth, I guess. 
Now, one of our guests, very successfully on the big interview, has been Harry Redknapp. Tell us how Harry Redknapp ruined your Manchester United Absolutely, career. Absolutely, 100%. It was incredible. <laughs> you and I are now, like, if you look at that picture behind you, we can see the six-yard line of a box. We can. And basically, this ball is coming across the six-yard box, and I am about to tap it in on my debut for Man United. Thinking, this is in the, here we go. in the Milk Cup. Against yeah. Bournemouth. Against Bournemouth, yeah. And I'm thinking, here we go, happy days. Nigel Spackman was playing for Bournemouth as well, I think. Who uh, obviously I know Webb. With. Yeah, David Webb. And the ball comes across the box, and I'm thinking, happy days. <laughs> I, I thought, I've never ever been in the six yard box in my life, and I'm thinking, wow, here we go. Old Trafford, what dreams are made of. And as you've rightly said, Harry Redknapp ruined my big day by scoring an own goal. <laughs> and honestly, never played another game. <laughs> I never played another game, honestly. Harry! Honestly, it was incredible. Never played another game, but we won 1 0, and we were poor. To be fair. Substituted and, uh, by? Yeah. I would imagine Norman Whiteside, was it? What do you mean, I would imagine? This yeah. is a first meeting and a first yeah, yeah. chat, but I think you... People well, have told days, you have a sharp, sharp football brain. Yeah, yeah. Norman in, Whiteside, In them days, indeed. there was only one suit. And obviously, I took his place, because he was a superstar then. Uh -huh. You know, sadly, he got a bad injury, but yep. he, was a, he was an absolute superstar. Fantastic football. And, and to be fair to Man United, and I have to say it genuinely, Graham, they made the right decision at that time, because I was in the reserves with Mark Hughes. You know, so they had Mark Hughes there, they had Scott McGarvey there, so they had other players. So I wasn't annoyed, I wasn't... Different skills? Yeah, but to be fair to Mark Hughes, when you look at what he went on to do for Man United, you know, you, you can understand. The 250,000 I talked about going to Carlisle, to Vancouver, Manchester United paid the same yeah. to Vancouver, but the deal was, if I went back, then Man United got the 250,000 back. And what happened was... Vancouver Whitecaps made £18,000 interest on that 250000 So that was all they got, really, £18,000. But, I mean, Vancouver, in a nice way, were quite pleased because they were happy for me to be going back and I had two more great years there and then I ended up obviously going to Newcastle. But uh, Vancouver yeah. was a... If you take the football aside, Vancouver was a pleasure because I've never been, but I'm told it's an exceptional place oh, to amazing. live. Amazing. Amazing city. Yeah, honestly, like... You obviously know a lot of expats, if you like, and, and honestly, the, the amount of sort of Empire Stadium where I first started, we ended up in BC Place, but when I first started Empire Place, it almost seemed as though it was, and I mean this, it sounds bad talking to you, but full of Scottish. Mm -hmm. The amount of Scottish people and the amount of people that were like, it sounds really big, what I'm going to tell you, I've, I've been voted in the last year the greatest ever player. And I've got to go over for I'd a I'd be over there protesting if they hadn't voyaged. <laughs> the uh, they've player. only been going 40 years, but I was gobsmacked when I got told last summer. No. I was actually, no, genuinely. It makes like, sense. No, but when you look, Peter Lorimer and obviously people like that, there's been some... If you take away the, the fact that it was Newcastle came calling to, to finally get you going again, did we come close to losing Peter Beardsley in the football scene in this country? Was there a life for the two of you that you sat and thought before Newcastle came in, this could do us. Yeah, I, I have to be honest. Once the, the Manchester United thing, I wouldn't say it went wrong, but it didn't happen. Didn't happen. Yeah, I would have said, yeah, quite happy, because I love Vancouver. Mm -hmm. The two of us were very young. I was 20 when I went over there, but loved every minute of it, honestly. And easier for me than probably for Sandra, in the sense that I was away. We used to go yeah. for 10 days at a time, play three games, so go Tampa, Dallas, New York. So it was great for me. You know, I ended up being a driver. We didn't have a bus. We had four station wagons. So you'd have a skip each. So I was in charge yeah, of a skip, yeah. but I also got access to the car. So I would be sightseeing where we literally, Graham, got together on an away trip for training only. So you ate yourself. So you got a per diem, 
you got money oh, yeah. to basically feed yourself. So we never had a, a meal together. The only meal we ever had together was pretty much. So you would train whatever time you of day. You kind of all the... arrived as you could by yeah, your yeah. own timing, yeah, yeah. each your vehicle. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, when, when we left to go to the stadium, so we'd have a pretty much, on a, say we were in Dallas, have a pretty much. I would have four people that I would drive in my car. So I always had the same five. But for the other 10 days, the car was pretty much my own. But you could be driving a 1,000 miles, presumably. Oh, yeah. Easy. Yeah, yeah. You see, Sunday League footballers all over the world, they listen to us now, will be thinking, that's what we do when we're waiting for a car that doesn't arrive and you're out in the pitch and you're like, well, where are these guys? Yeah, yeah. And I, I watched a documentary on Salford City with Gary yeah, yeah, and Phil and yeah, their striker got lost. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, game. No. Nobody ever no, got no. lost or turned up fair, late. The or... funniest, one of the funniest things I ever did, really harsh at the time, when we played at home, we used to go to the hotel for a pretty much meal. Mm. So we'd go to the hotel. And, but when we used to leave the hotel, it was almost like a race to the stadium. A, a race. Like, Literally a, a challenge. Race, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, most of us had Vancouver Whitecaps cars, so we had the badge on the car. And, and one of the funniest things I ever did was uh, Terry Yorif. You know, we, uh, basically, I was at the travel lights with him. But as you'll know, in America, they go red to green. Yeah. They don't go red amber green. Mm -hmm. They go red to green. So... I'm sitting obviously next to him and he's obviously looking at me and we're looking at each other. But the light's on red and I pretend I'm going to go. And he just reacts to me and he goes and he crashes. <laughs> so he turns up at the stadium late. It's funny now, when you, I got to the stadium, I'm know, thinking, wow, it's not funny. We've talked already about the existence of a greater being, right? Him and me were talking today about watching you play football. You did in a car. What you did to defenders yeah. all your career. And I was telling him about the famous story about Dixie Dean when he was playing yeah, yeah. for Everton. And yeah. I think it was maybe, I don't know, Bill Foots or yeah, yeah. George Lawrence. Or yeah, yeah, it was one it was. of the top players, yeah, yeah. And Dixie had the evil eye on him. And they were, the mythical story is that they were walking on either side of the street and Dixie nodded at whoever the keeper and the keeper died full length. <laughs> and you've, you've dummied yeah. somebody with, with a, you dummied Terry with a car. Yeah. Uh, that means something magical oozes out of your pores. Well, you can't dummy somebody. It was just when I did it, and I just drove off. When I changed, I just drove off, and I thought maybe should have waited. Done him there. Yeah, I maybe should have waited because obviously he would have been, without being cruel, ten years older than me. And I just thought maybe I should have waited, but I didn't. And obviously he turned up late. That is absolute and utter genius. I well, have to say. I look at it now and it's really funny, but at the time I'm thinking, wow, have I gone a bit too far there? Thank goodness we didn't lose you to that life. And I, and I imagine that, wow, you've already mentioned a number of pitch a bit moments. You scored brilliant goals on the 4th of July and George Best said, I'm going to ring Man United about you. Not. But if you're coming home, Newcastle have seen sense. And having said no the first time and let you go, not only did you come back, but you come back in, in an environment that we're not really used to right now. I've obviously seen it three times in my lifetime, yeah. but the tune they're on the up. Everything's going. Keegan's there. Chrissy Wardle's coming through. You come back. It was incredible, Graham, because obviously I get the phone call off Arthur Cox. Mm -hmm. Easily now, mm -hmm. you could listen to anybody talk around the world. So if somebody said, Arthur Cox is going to ring you now, you could listen to his voice somewhere. But I didn't have a clue. I really didn't know it was Arthur mm -hmm. Cox. He said it was him. <laughs> and I honestly, after the Terry Yorick thing, I'm thinking, wow, somebody's winding me up here. <laughs> Genuinely. There wasn't like a tapping up situation where somebody rings you and says, Arthur Cox is going to ring you. Would you go to Newcastle? There was none of that. Seriously, I got a phone call out of the boat. And uh, he said, it's Arthur Cox here. 
And I'm thinking he's winding me up. Um, so anyway, eventually I realised it's him. And he said, uh, I want you to come and play for Newcastle. And at the time, genuinely, I was on £400 a week in Vancouver, which a lot of money in mm. terms of 1981. Yeah. You know, and happy with that. That's, like, that's not bad. Yeah, absolutely. Accommodation was paid for, you know, everything. It was brilliant because my wife and family and obviously her family, my family, we were allowed to bring two of them out every year to stay with us and go back and like, they would get four flights paid for, basically. So everything was perfect. Honestly, you couldn't... So Arthur's talking to me and, you know, and he said, I know what you're getting. I know you're getting £400 a week. He said, well, look after you. I was so naive. I didn't say, like, what am I going to get? What's yeah. the deal? Yeah. yeah. I said, yeah. And he, he said, Kevin Keegan, you know, play alongside Kevin Keegan, you know, that's got to be perfect for you and all that. So anyway, I then get into London, Sandra and I, and we get the shuttle up to Newcastle, obviously the, the British Airways shuttle, and unbeknown to me, Kevin Keegan's on the plane. Genuinely, on my kid's life, he's on the plane, and I ain't got a clue. So anyway, and then halfway through the journey, only an hour of the flight, Kevin Keegan comes to see Sandra and I, and he said, uh, you're the one that Arthur's been causing me nightmares about. Thinking, wow, that's not a good start. But what he said was, He's been ringing me through the night, telling me it's going to happen. And I'm going to bring this superstar, and he's going to be your partner, and we're going to get promotion. And he said, like, I hope you're good. And he said, but we'll find out tomorrow, because that was going to be my first day training. So I'm thinking, wow. No what pressure. Was, oh, yeah, I'm thinking, wow, this can't be right. Because he wouldn't have had a clue who I was. Somebody obviously on the flight, and I mean this in a nice way, must have told him who I was. I don't know how. I don't know because how that came about. Again, for him, there's no internet is what we're saying. No, no, absolutely. So in other words, yeah, this yeah. thing about Arthur's yeah, yeah. voice, absolutely. whether it was Terry Pulley yeah, or yeah. Frank or, yeah, yeah. or Kevin knowing who I yeah. things were different. Absolutely. And Kevin wouldn't have even known what I looked like. Yeah. Like Arthur said, I'm going to bring Peter Beersley back. And he actually publicly admitted as a Newcastle player, he didn't have a clue who I was. And, mm. and that's fine. I got no problem with that. But anyway... He said he's been giving me nightmares. He's been ringing me all sorts of time. Because obviously the time difference when he's speaking to me, he's then ringing Kevin like two, three in the morning because he's excited. It's going to happen. So anyway, come back, go to meet Arthur Cox at St. James's. Joe Harvey was still there, still around. And Jackie Milburn. Jackie Milburn was working for the News of the World. And so obviously I'm going to do a little press conference, nothing on the scale of what they do now. But Had you met Jackie before? No, never met him. So Big stuff. Absolutely. So walking up the steps at St. James's and Jackie Milburn said to me, the only thing they ever ask, son, is you give your maximum and you run around. I said, well, I'll definitely do that. I said, I've got no problem. Yeah. If that's all they want, I'll be all right. And he said, no, no, I've heard good things. He said, you'll be better than all right. And he was really, in really positive. In truth, your skill aside, he was telling you something you knew. Yeah, it would you, you, were, you were a proper Newcastle fan growing up, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Not just a football no, fan. No, no, absolutely. I couldn't afford to go and watch them. No, but... But it was in my blood, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt, Jinky Jimmy, Tony Green, you know, only played 33 games for us, probably the best player we ever had, you know. So, yeah, so. it was my team, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. But then I go to see Arthur Cox to sign mm. on the dotted line, you know, Vancouver agreed to let me go, whatever. Mm -hmm. And the fee was £125,000. So I've gone over there for 250 and they're selling me for half price, basically. So I go back and I see Arthur and he said, uh, I know what you got in Vancouver, we'll give you £300 a week. So now I'm getting four and a pound a week. I think, what? That can't be right. Because <laughs> tell me a player that's moved in recent times where he's got less than what he had before. So Javier Mascherano. Yeah, well. But yeah. in general, yeah. him and him Very alone. unusual, absolutely. So anyway, he said, uh, we'll give you three and a pound a week. I said, well, Arthur, you know I'm getting four and a pound a week, but the chance to play alongside Kevin Keegan, that's got to be worth a hundred pound, he said. 
And to be fair, that was in a nutshell. But what he did say was, if we get promotion, we will give you a new contract, and obviously then we'll give you what you deserve or whatever, depending on what you do. And luckily that season, he scored 20 goals in 34 games from coming back in October. And so it was brilliant. We got promotion, everything was perfect. But then Arthur leaves. He leaves to go somewhere else and, and Jack Charlton comes in. Mm. And Jack Charlton doesn't know the agreement. The agreement's word of mouth. It's not like written down, you'll get it. But Russell Cushion, who was the secretary at the time, obviously he knew the deal. And basically Jack Charlton calls me in. He knows the deal now because of Russell Cushion. And he, unbeknown to me, Graham, baffled me with signs, this, that and the other, unbeknown to me genuinely, offers me less than what I was on. But structured in a different way, he just baffled me. So it wasn't interested in money really, but I'm now driving home, agreed to a deal, and Russell Cushion phones me up and said, whoa, 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 you need to get back in here very quickly. Didn't tell me why. And then when I got back in, obviously they made a mistake. I could have walked free because they'd offered me less than what I was actually on. Well, those and, were the yeah, rules. And they were the rules at that time, but I didn't oh. know that. I was unaware of that. I, would, I wouldn't have done it, but he said, we've made a mistake. Oh. And so I ended up going on £1,200 a week. Ah. Russell, well done. Uh, but I don't want to be cheeky because I've never met Sandra before, but in my experience, if you bring a pay packet home that's less than the one you've been earning, the first person that's going to notice it is, is your partner. I think, to be fair, I have to be honest, Graham, not in a selfish way, but she was delighted to be coming home in the sense that I mentioned about me going away for 10 days at a time. She was living on her own, basically, you know, through no fault of hers, through no yeah. fault of ours. You know, as I said to you, we'd never flown before, either of us. So yeah. it was another world. And when you're, without being big-headed, the centre of attention all the time, yeah. and, and she obviously never... And you don't really have yeah. the same kind of yeah. community around. You're certainly not no, family no. around To be fair, Dave Thomas, as in, obviously, Brenda, his wife, Jeanette Taylor, uh, Alan's wife, they really took her under her wing Good. and really looked after her. So fair play to them. But easy for me always being away as the centre of attention playing football, for her being stuck in Vancouver, sometimes on her own. And obviously phone access now compared to then is totally yeah. different. There was yeah. no mobiles. Yeah. So it was really hard for her. But she never ever said we have to go home. But I think it worked out well that obviously our family are from Carlisle. And it just worked out perfect. And nice when you come on when it's successful because the thing I was tapping into is that, you know, there's a lot of, there, there's right this very second, there's, there's a degree of optimism because Steve McLaren is clearly week by week doing things. And oh, absolutely. You can see some nice little players, and but when it's big here, when it's flowing, this club hasn't done the same things as the biggest clubs in the world. But I bet you that you could swap this atmosphere when things are going well for the turn with anything in, in Liverpool or Madrid or Boca Juniors or Bayern Munich, when, when things are on the Absolutely. up, it must have felt like you died and gone to heaven in those first couple of years with promotion and then doing well. Absolutely. The promotion for me, and obviously being a fan, to help them get promotion, like I keep telling people now, Graham, no matter how much money you have, there are certain things you can't buy. Whatever you do, you know, you might be the richest man in the world, but you can't pay to play for Barcelona, yeah. Chelsea, it doesn't matter. But to play for Newcastle as a homegrown, to be a fan, to actually go on there and wear the strip and you know that you've got your mates watching you, was one of them things that you just couldn't buy. And it was incredible. To get promotion like, in that season, to be fair, before I arrived, Kevin and Chris, Chris Waddle had scored a few goals before that, but... Over the season, the three of us between us, we scored 65 league goals. So it was just incredible. And, and big-headed it sounds, we played Brighton on the last day of the season. 
and we won 3-1 and, and all three of us scored and I scored with five minutes to go over Joe Colligan, who's the tallest man <laughs> in the world. <laughs> it's funny because, it's quite funny, we have a young lad in our academy stroke reserves that we've promoted now, who he'll try things that I tried. And it was funny because, by coincidence, on Newcastle.com, sort of YouTube of goals from certain games on the day it happened. Oh yeah, yeah. So Good last idea. year we were in Hong Kong, basically going on a seven-a-side tournament and he was one of the lads. And he tried to chip from the D, the D, as we call it, on the edge of the box. I was saying, well, come on, Dan, nobody can do that. He went, you can. And it was like, wow. And I never thought anything about it. And he said, I've seen it on YouTube. He said, you can do it. And if you can do it, well, I can do it. And I said to him, well, the difference is you're on AstroTurf. I was almost playing down what I'd done. He said, but that goalie was really big. I said, well, yeah, it's a fair point. But it's brilliant that, like, People say, do you get bored about talking about football? There's always something special to talk about. Well, you, you reminded me that, I was going to say, you said that because the Hartlepool players around you yeah. weren't operating on quite the same clock as you in terms of where the ball might be, where it should be, where they should be. You said, you know, I, I didn't look all out. And I know there'll have been somebody, maybe a clutch of people in them crowds at Hartlepool going, look at that diamond of a play. Everybody else is out of step apart from them. That's what they should be doing. And there'll be... Some kids, maybe they never grew up with professional football. They'll, they'll be going, that Peter Pizza, that's, that's how they... And you'll have inspired this kid yeah, yeah. who's trying to chip people. There'll be people in that article crowd who understood exactly that it was the other ten who were wrong and it was you were right. I think and they'll the go one. and play their brand of football, whether it's in the school or whether it's in the civil service or whatever. They'll go and play their football your way. I think you're being really careful. I think no, no, maybe no, no, the no. only one... Might have been Sandra, my missus. <laughs> how's she you your, how's doing? Yeah, how's your touch? Is her touch good? Yeah, she understands. <laughs> she understands where the ball should go. You said it was perfect, but it, it wasn't kind of... So their ending was perfect and that season was perfect. It wasn't quite perfect because Kevin found out that no, his legs had gone, but you drew Liverpool in the cup. Yeah. And he kind of... I suppose if... Maybe it was a good way. If you're going to realise that it's the time to go, do you want to realise away at Brentford... Do you want to yeah, yeah, realise it in, your, in the cathedral to your own achievements yeah. as Kevin did no, it? No, absolutely. What was it? It was a cup? cup yeah, it was the FA Cup. It was one of the first Friday night BBC games. We stayed at the Haydock Thistle. Our pre-match sort of training was Haydock Racecourse getting over the hurdles. Arthur Cox had us getting over the hurdles. The racecourse. You're not selling me a Terry no, 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 here, are you? No, no, I'm telling you the truth. We had to, basically, <laughs> that was our warm-up on the Friday morning. Basically, some of us had to get over the hurdles. It was almost like a test. I'd be Well, it there. was a it's, fun it's test. Like... No, no, absolutely. It's like nothing, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way. It's just like... Were you blinkered? Uh, well, to be fair, I wish I had a been. I wish I had a been. It's, uh, the only other time it ever happened, Graham, and it obviously relates to Liverpool, we used to go to Aintree. Yep. So, depending on Liverpool-Everton, one of us on the national day, obviously we played home 11.15 in the morning Yeah. and we actually played Sheffield Wednesday at home and we won 5-1 at Anfield and then we went to races. Alan Hansen and John Barnes, believe it or not, started on the, the starting line and the, the bet was the first one that could get over the first hurdle at the entry and they came back with scratches. And <laughs> it was incredible, with jockey as we call them. was just like, wow. It was just unbelievable. They obviously had one beer too many, or one glass of wine too. But, but had to win. She absolutely. Did, they wouldn't let it go. And obviously, when they came back, uh, we all had suits on. And it, wow. <laughs> it was like they'd been beat up. It was like so funny. But like, that's the way football was. Silly you'd, things, but funny things. You'd almost say maybe better off the pitch then and 
Oh yeah. Well, maybe I think maybe sometimes better on the pitch now. I don't know. Yeah, I think no. I think when you look at it, obviously it's horses for courses in terms of different times, different ideas. You know, you look at a lot of funny things that I think are funny yeah. get lost in translation now through no fault of anybody's. What a Jack Callback might do here, or a Stephen Taylor. You know, to me, maybe the funniest thing in the world, but mm. to a foreign player, it might mean nothing. You know, yeah. so it was different where we were all sort of British, if you like, in the main. Yeah. You know, when Kevin Broad. Ginola, Spurla, uh, Albert, they very quickly caught on to the English culture and, and they were brilliant. They really were that part of that entertainment. They were just incredible people that wanted to have a laugh and it was just incredible. Tino was just the funniest man in the world. He, he really was, you know. You, loved him. Your face is crinkled up in humour even oh, saying yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Some of the things he'd come out with. Tell uh, me. Well, just unbelievable, like, incredible things that you just, he would come out on the morning, and he would be, like you were saying earlier about Messi, just fiddling with the ball, just try and bend the ball so he'd be on the right wing and be trying to bend the ball into the roof of the net and all that. Kevin Keegan would come out and they, most of the other players would stop out of respect for Kevin and Tino would still be fiddling with the ball. And by this time, there's probably 15 balls all over the place. And Kevin said, when are you going to stop? He said, well, I have to practice, I have to get better. Kevin said, yeah, but we're ready to start. He said, well, yeah, but in a minute, I'll get one, and you'll say, very good, Tino. <laughs> and I like it when you say very good. And it's just like, it's just brilliant. We had an incident, with him, and, and you'll know, Kevin used to speak to Tino in Spanish. Mm. Colombian used to speak to him in Spanish. So anyway, we're playing Blackburn at home in the FA Cup, and we're 1-0 down half time, and Kevin's come in and he's human. And by this stage, I'm not the target. <laughs> he's moved off me. So, but he's talking to Tino in Spanish. This is from Kevin yeah. having lived in Marbella yeah, yeah, for absolutely. so long. Yeah, 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 lived yeah, in, yeah That's yeah. why I'm called Pedro. I was going to so, ask you that. So I have Pedro on my number plate now. So I have P-A-D-R-O. Because like, Kevin told me when the piece came out a long time ago, now everybody thinks I paid a lot of money for it. I just paid whatever you pay to have a number plate on. But anyway, so I've got Pedro on my number plate, but I've got P-8. But Kevin told me to get P-3-D-R-O. But I said to Kevin, I wear number eight. So it works out even more perfect. But anyway... Getting back to Tino, like, so we're playing in the FA Cup, we're playing Blackburn at home, we're 1-0 down, and Kevin's lost it, but in Spanish, so we ain't got a clue what he's saying, <laughs> and there's a little space, so where I'm sitting now, Graham, there's another space there, but the showers and the baths are basically in between, so Kevin's standing here, Teddy would be standing on his right as we look, so there's no space between them, and there's nowhere to go, so anyway, he's hammering Tino, and Tino all of a sudden starts taking his kid off, and we're thinking, wow, that's strange. So we haven't got a clue what's Kevin Whatever saying. he's saying isn't yeah, going yeah, right, absolutely. is it? Absolutely. <laughs> so anyway, he now walks between Kevin and Terry Mack, got no gear on, got a towel, and his ghost starts running the bath. And Kevin's still trying to talk to us, and Kevin's fuming. Wow. And basically, he's looking at us, and he's trying to talk to us, but you can hear Tino running the bath, singing, whistling. Honestly, <laughs> and as a player, we are absolutely wetting ourselves, thinking, wow, this is so funny. But like Kevin's trying to keep a straight face and, and every now and then he would look along the corridor thinking, all sorts. Anyway, we go and play the game. We end up winning 2-1. And so we come in at the end and uh, Rob Lee, obviously thinking he was clever, said to me, and I was the captain at the time, he said, Pedro, have a word with KK. He said, uh, tell him well done, great idea to take Tino off. But why? You know. So anyway, me thinking I'm clever, I said to the gaffer, in front of everybody, I said, gaffer, Rob Lee wants to know. I said... <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, good idea to take Tino off, but what happened? He said, he said uh, I told him obviously in Spanish, 
you've got two minutes to get your finger out, otherwise you're coming off. He left, I don't know how you get rid of this, but he said, you know, I said, fuck you, I'm coming off now. And it's just unbelievable. <laughs> that was and it. just the way he was, just mad. But nice mad. Yeah, I loved him. Every day, you should teach you something different with the ball and a skill that you'd never seen before. Just incredible. Really. You see, you, you started, to, to my way of thinking, you started us talking about the comparison. Right now, incidents like that, there would have been a story then, but now they can be... If they're taken, it'll be like that's the end of the relationship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, this happens every week, every month, and there's breakdowns and it gets back together and whatever. And while well, David Moyes was still in Spain up at Real Sociedad, yeah. I was on the phone to him and chatting about this and that, and then, and he had a result that had gone well. He, I think he won away at Granada, or whatever. And Archie Knox was out to visit him, and Archie was there just for his own enjoyment and to watch and to learn and whatever. So it's only a couple of months, a few months ago now. And David said, oh, what a tonic Archie's been. It's great to have him here. He can't tell stories to the other players, but he's been telling stories to me and Billy McKinley just to lighten up. He was telling this story about Aberdeen, Alec Ferguson's in charge, and Archie's his number two, and Mark McGee's not having it. Mark McGee, who played at Newcastle, yeah, yeah, too, yeah. he's not having the greatest of the game. And so Fergie says to Archie, Archie, get dug into him, get dug into him, get a reaction for the second half. So Archie's gone, McGee! You're not just the worst player at this club. You're not just the worst player in Scotland. You're the worst player in, in Britain. You're the, you're the worst player in Britain. <laughs> Dingus isn't a, a Pochettino spree, a whistling and singing. He's going, right, fuck you then in that case. <laughs> Half time straight to the showers. I'm not fucking playing in that case. And he's washing himself and Alec goes, Archie, Archie, what have you done? Hey, get him. Dressed him back out there for the second half. So Archie's not got to go into the showers. <laughs> Make the piece of Dingus. Get him dressed, kitted and back out again. Of course... I'm sure I was at the game at the time. You never know these things going. And with a little bit of the temperatures going down, they become funny. In a, in a competitive environment, there's always going to be no, these no, things. I have to be honest, Graham. You remember Tino Asprilla saying for Newcastle, in the snow, he's in a grey overcoat. Yeah, he's yeah. dressed a bit Flanagan and Allen a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, long coat. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so anyway, he comes on the Tuesday, signs, but has to go back for work permit. So we're at Middlesbrough on the Saturday, so we go overnight, stay at the hotel, Redworth Hall, and I don't go around for pre-match, never went down for pre-match. I used to go there for breakfast, have bacon and eggs, orange juice, go back to bed. Watch swap shop in them days. So go back, anyway. So I never went down for pre-match, so I get on the bus, and we'd never met Tino when he came over on the Tuesday. No, no. So there's this black lad sitting beside Kevin Keegan. And I am going to clue who it is, yeah. genuinely. So I just acknowledged him, how are you doing? And went past, went and sat in my seat, and KK said, uh, Pedro, Pedro, yeah, come here. He said, uh, this is uh, Faustino Asprilla. I said, really? And he couldn't understand what I was saying. So anyway, I said, really? He said, yeah. And I'd only seen pictures of him on TV. So I said, what's he doing here? He said, he arrived in this morning. The work parents arrived. I'm going to put him on the bench. He said, I might even put him on. He's only had one glass of wine. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> he went, well, in Italy, you'll know, Graham, in yeah. Italy, they have wine with the meal. They can do, yeah. So he actually had had a glass of red wine. I went, really? I said, well, as long as you didn't come on for me, I don't care. <laughs> I, I honestly did, honestly, 100%. So anyway, go in the dressing room, names the team, put some soap. We're getting ready, and KK comes over again. He said, if need be, I'm going to put him on. I said, I don't care, Gaffer. As long as I don't come off, I don't care. Anyway, so we're one nil down half time. And sure enough, you know, getting ready, getting ready, getting ready. Kevin said, give it five minutes, give it five minutes. So we're now out there, and we're 1-0 down, 20 minutes to go, and Tino comes running on. And he comes running on, Graham. He comes running over and he goes, 
So he's trying to point to his eyes, point to my eyes, and wow, what is he on about? <laughs> so it comes over, uh, and basically I'm thinking, I can't help you, Tino. And I went, good luck, and I ran off. <laughs> Not in a horrible way, I just ran, couldn't help him. But he was incredible. He was absolutely incredible. He made both goals, we, we won 2-1. Turned it around, yeah. eh? Yeah, and so we go in the dressing room after the game, and he's got an interpreter with him. And so the interpreter brought him over and said, do you know what he was doing when he was going like this, like backwards and forwards, eyes to eyes? I actually said to the interpreter, who was a Geordie lad, and he said, well, what he was trying to say was, I've been watching, me and you can we play know together. We, yeah. <laughs> wow. And I just thought, wow, that's incredible. And, and to be fair, it got on with him like a house on fire. Nice compliment. Absolutely. I was, I was gobsmacked, but what a super thing. I don't know how to break it, but it was this, because that was pretty volatile times. During these times, oh, yeah, absolutely. Kevin's had a famous had a pop yeah, at yeah. Fergie. Yeah, yeah. Twice. Absolutely. I think it merits, for those who are not Newcastle fans, Emerging twice, you finished second. Yeah, yeah. The first time by a very narrow margin. Oh no, we blew it. The, first um, time the we players' blew. player of the year in one instance has been Les Ferdinand, yeah, Newcastle. Yeah. The players' player of the year the second time has been Alan Shearer, yeah, Newcastle. Yeah, yeah. Um, you didn't win the league at the time, but for you know, for some reason, there was this urban myth came up that it was partly to do with. Yeah. Why did that come up? And, yeah, and I think if I'm being honest, Jim. 100% it was because he was the last player in the building. Simple as that, eh? Yeah, obviously it was a January signing then, as in obviously deadline, yep. whatever you want to call it. He was the last one in. And I honestly think, but he was a superstar. Some of the things he did, remember him scoring a goal against West Ham at St James, we won 3-0, and he scored this goal at like, Les Seeley, God rest his soul, was in goal at the time. And he dinks this ball from the corner of the 18-yard box, and it must go like, what seems like 50 yards high and comes down and drops in the net. Mm. And it was just like slow motion. And he just did some incredible things, you know. But he just sadly got the blame. And that was totally unjust, 100% unjust. He wasn't a blame. We blew it. We were 12 points clear. As a group of players, whether you call it individual mistakes, whatever you want to call it, we blew it. Do you, we, do you, do you know analytically? Does that, I mean, you, you've been a big winner across your career. So maybe the thorn in the side is a little bit less, but it's your hometown club. Yeah, you yeah. were ahead. You'll have an idea about, as a group, what went wrong, I guess. Yeah, well, I think just basically we didn't change. And I don't blame Kevin for that. In terms of the style of play, whether we were 3-0 or 1-0, we always played the same way, so we were always in a position where we could concede goals, you know, but it was the way Kevin believed. Mm. And I was fully behind him, and I will never, ever say any different. I will never say it was the wrong thing, yeah. because I honestly believe it wasn't the wrong thing, because them two, three years in terms of style of football, what they enjoyed watching, they might never see that again. And that's no. not being disrespectful, that is a fact of life. Because of the way football is now, you know, it is a business now, there's no doubt about it. It's about survival in some cases, where to be fair to the new manager, he wants us to play like the entertainers played. And hopefully if he gets his wish, we will do. And, and obviously once we get up the league, win a few more games, then we'll see it even more. But, you know, it is an incredible thing that we had at that time for me, as a Newcastle kid, you know, even though they won the first cup, I'd never been able to watch football like that. No. But to actually play and be part of that was just incredible. Was there an exuberance, a euphoria around the city? That... Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, 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 it was incredible, you know. At 12 points, I have to say, they all thought we'd won the league, yeah. 100%. And I don't blame them for that. I can't say that I ever thought that, but it does go through your mind, like, 12 points, yeah, we can't blow this, we can't blow this. And it almost works the other way, as in, well, all of a sudden we're nine and then we're six and then we're three and, and to be fair to Man U 
they did incredible. They had an unbelievable run where Smiley was keeping clean sheets, Canton was scoring winning goals. It really was an incredible thing. But we've talked about entry and Haydock, and there is a comparison because when you've been the course... Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're like, ah, oh, no, this is going to hurt. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is, and I may not get over this. My belly might get scraped over this big, horrible fence, but I'm going to go over it. Oh, and when it comes to the line, and if I'm not a metre ahead, I'm still going to get there. And it, it, you accumulate no, it, that and, knowledge. And the sad thing is it went right down to the last game. Yeah. On the last Sunday, you know, Middlesbrough obviously had to beat Man United, but obviously Man United had to beat Middlesbrough, which, and no way is it Middlesbrough's fault. They just got beat on the day. You know, Man United would just basically did what they had to do. And to be fair, they were just so clever at doing that. To be fair to them, they had such great attacking players, you know, with obviously gigs and obviously people like Cantona that were just special, do you know what I mean? And, and fair play to them, you know. I never feel offended, upset about it. It was just one of them things. Well, not that special, I'll claim, because it recently has emerged that Sir Alex wanted you, not him. Did you learn about this just recently, like the rest of us, or did you know at the time? Because the clarity is, he said, that absolutely for sure, the fluke of Cantona coming along, which was known, that leads, as soon as they were asking for Dennis Irwin and Alec went, or Alex secretary went, you know, we'll have Cantona off you. And they were like, yeah. His target was you. He wanted to yeah, sign I, Peter Beardsley. I was unaware of it, genuinely. Mm. I, I have read it since in his book. I have read the fact that he did want me, but I wasn't aware of it, genuinely. I did not have a clue. I really did not have a clue because... Even though I'd had an experience of six months there, as you know, Graham, with Man United, for me, the biggest club. I have no qualms about saying that now, even as a Newcastle coach, player, whatever you want to call it. It was incredible. When I went there for those six months, it was incredible, I have to say. And, and they weren't at their best at that time. No. But as a club, everything they did, for me, in those six months, was like a class act. And they were incredible, I have to say. Is that something that you've grown up with and you've assimilated by hearing the legends and seeing yeah, stuff absolutely. on TV, or is it something different? No, is it about I think the... when I look at the way they were with me and Sandra, obviously we had no kids at the time, the way they treated us, you know, Ray Wilkins was vice-captain then, Brian Robson took over the captaincy, but Ray Wilkins treated me like a king, really couldn't have been nicer to me. The way they looked after Sandra and I for the six months, it really was like just class. Everything about it, the club, players, staff, people within the club, it really was amazing, I have to say. It was an incredible six months considering I only played one game. If I had my life over again, I'd done the same. Even though it didn't work out, That's right. I 100% would have done the same. I'm quite certain that given what you did and achieved, and you've probably got no regrets, but it, it is an oddity that the greatest club manager ever said that's the guy who can make everything tick, that can unlock things for us, that can be that creative, central when footballer. I've seen it since. I have definitely seen it in his book. We have so many football books in our house that I have definitely seen it. And obviously we just bought his new one in the last three months, whatever it was. Him saying that was just incredible because he, he was unbelievable, wasn't he? When you look at what he bought and what he produced and when I look at schools, who's one of my all-time favourites, I have to say. There's a definite similarity yeah, in well, how you both saw the I game. I was really lucky, Graham. I worked with Paul Scores, and I say it worked loosely. I was part of Kevin Keegan's 2,000 euro squad in terms of coach, whatever. But if I'm being totally honest, I was there more as a friend. And I'm not negative about that, not at all. You know, the players trapped me as a coach and they were brilliant to me, no complaints at all. But Kevin Keegan said to me this afternoon, because we were at Spa at the time, and when you look at technology now, you know, 15, 16 years ago, there wasn't what there is now. So no. there was a lot of boredom, through no fault of anybody, there was yeah. a lot of boredom. So Kevin said to me, get five or six players, we'll go and do a bit of shooting and whatever. And we went down, and, and at the time there was uh, Nigel Martin and David Seaman. 
he said, get the keepers and get Beckham and get Alan Shearer and obviously uh, Scolzi and Emil Heskey. And basically, we'll go and have a shooting session. So the drill was, so the D on the 18-yard box, you either could hit a dead ball from the D or you could touch it into the D and bend it. You know, you had two touches, basically, or yeah. you could hit a dead ball. Yeah. And to be fair to David Beckham, most of the time he would hit a dead ball. So they would be doing it in a sequence of 10, so Scholes would have 10 shots, Alan Shearer 10, Beckham 10, then they have another 10. And they were having 50 each. And Scholes, he scored 49 out of 50 and hit the post with the other. Oh, wow. no. Honestly. I've never seen anything like it in my life and probably never will again. It was incredible. And just loved the kid. And to be fair, Graham, what a pro in terms of train, go to bed. Train, go to bed. Train, eat, go to bed. Honestly, he was just obsessed with it. And I have to say, I listen to him now on obviously BT and that, and he's doing really well, but what a great kid. He just absolutely loved football. There's something wrong, though, that in general, this country, your national team, they never broke my heart as a Scot, but as a football fan it did, you know, beyond nationalities. He was never really used no, no. properly. No, no, I 100% agree with you. That says something bigger than just Paul Scholes career, because how can a talent like that be there and, and not be fully utilised? No, it's... no, I'm 100% with you. I really am 100%. Uh, he never ever, in my time, played in his right foot position. You know, for me, build a team around him. You, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you start with him. You play you? where you want to play. Yeah. And you tell me where you want to play and we'll put the rest in around you. Does that say something about our, our characteristics? Yeah, I think, I think it's almost Do you understand like, it? Yeah, absolutely. No, I don't understand it, no. I no, don't I understand don't. it. You know, when I look, Graham Taylor came to take over as England manager and he ended up playing Brian Robson on the left wing in one of the games. You know, what? played him wide left, not as a winger, obviously, but in no. a four-four-two. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In one of his last games and seriously... You know, your best players are your best players. No matter what team you are, your best players are your best players. I don't know if it's Shanks, but I remember it as a Liverpool saying that football's a simple game that we, absolutely. That we complicate. We complicate, absolutely. <laughs> it definitely was. There's a decent... No, no. I, I can't let you go without you two things. I need to celebrate the fact that you became a serial champion playing genius football in two different styles at Liverpool. But there are a couple of questions. People, we asked, we've got a lot of followers, there's been 1.7 million people have listened to this. Absolutely. And people sent in questions, and when we said it was you, they just went absolutely mad. So these are slightly more quickfire, is the idea. This is from Rob at um, Percy Headley, and Les and Michael and Peter and Alan. They've ganged together, it's a brains trust, just to say, which would you change if you could? The World Cup semi-defeat, which is 90, or not winning the Premiership with Newcastle? You could only pick you can change it but you no, can only pick there, one there is no doubt losing the premiership with Newcastle mm -hmm. 100% not even, not even a, an issue it never was never will be love playing for England wouldn't swap a day of that but to win the league with Newcastle would have been like the best ever now, these same lads agree with Martin and I that there's some sort of strange blood or DNA relationship between you and Leo Messi because you're very very similar <laughs> particularly in your finishing and balance and just that way to show somebody one way and what was the all-time best goal that you scored? And these fellas are asking that because they're showing their young staff at work a video on YouTube comparing you and Messi. Yeah, my most enjoyable would have been for Newcastle at Portsmouth. Kevin gave me a hospital ball, as we call it, and I just managed to nick in in front of the goalkeeper and then went round him and now I'm running across the lane and I'm basically the width of these chairs away from the goal line. And Terry McDermott is on the 18-yard line shouting, put it in, Pedro, put it in. And the left-back 
Sullivan or O'Sullivan, left back at Portsmouth, comes running across and he's about to tackle me. And my mind told me, not bothered. Because if the worst comes to the worst, he's going to score an own goal. So I waited and waited and waited. And I can hear Terry Mack shouting, put it in, Pedro, put it in. And the funniest thing of all, Graham, was, which I'll explain in a minute, was like, so he goes flying past me on a muddy pitch at Fratton Park. And then eventually I tap it in. But this happened in the 45th minute of the game. So we're 1-0 up at halftime in Arthur Cox's mind. And the reason I say that is, Arthur Cox, in them days, there was no electronic scoreboard to say one minute, three minutes work. Arthur Cox used to always go down the tunnel at 44 minutes. A bit like Mourinho has done recently, whatever. Anyway, I don't know why. Or don't. Anyway, so he would go down, get himself ready. And as soon as we went in the dressing room, he would either go mad or be really positive. So anyway, we go in the dressing room and he hasn't seen me go. So we're 1-0 up when he goes down the tunnel. But when we go in, we're 2-0 up. And we go in and he's like, he's going, come on, lads, it's a bloody disgrace. You know, only beating these 1-0. And to be fair to tell him, he went, Arthur, Arthur, Pedro's just scored a wonder goal, it's 2-0. And Arthur very quickly went, we're playing well now, aren't we? <laughs> and it was just unbelievable how from 1-0 to 2-0, having not seen the goal, just the change in the tone was just incredible. I'm going to bear my backside here because that wasn't the game at Fratton Park where Chrissy Wardle scores an absolute no, wonder goal on a, on no, a song no, of a pitch. i tell you, that would have been St James's Park against Portsmouth. Was it? With it? When he scored from 25 yards, he scored two 25-yarders on the day. Whose pass was it from? One of them was mine. But he, I thought yeah, that. Yeah, one of them was mine, but it was a simple pass. It wasn't okay, a different pass. Oh, yeah, Honestly, yeah. I'm quite proud of that. And, yeah, and he actually banged this goal in. To be honest, it was my second home game for Newcastle. And Alan Bailey was playing for Portsmouth at the time. Bailey's boots. Yeah. Hello, Peter Jensen, yeah. Bailey's boots. Yeah, and he... So, Alan Bailey scored for them. But anyway, we won 4-2 at home. And Waddle had scored two unbelievable 25 yards. They were incredible. Yeah. And Arthur Cox took them off. And so we go in the dressing room at the end of the game, and, I, and he said to Waddle, do you know why I took you off? And Waddle went, no. He said, because you didn't want to score a hat-trick. Not many people get the chance to score a hat-trick for this club, son. And you've just let a chance pass you by. And I was gobsmacked, honestly. And then the next home game we played was Man City at home and I scored a hat-trick. And it's quite ironic, really, how like, Arthur was like praising me to the hilt about like nobody gets a chance to score a hat-trick for Newcastle many times. And, and we beat Man City 5-0 at home. And it was like, it was me, my first home goal, and then I scored three on the day, and it was just like... There's more questions. There's been a recurrent theme through this interview when you've talked about it. Like, there must be times when you feel that you're anointed, that somebody's just shifting the plates of life into your path because so many things happens that's beyond talent. Nah, well, it's nice that you say that. But, no, but it's I, like a combination I, I, yeah, of circumstances. Nah, I, it's really nice because obviously people are really nice to me, but I get embarrassed because I, I only do what I was doing. I loved what I did. I never ever thought at the end of the game, we've won and we've earned a bonus or we've won and that's great. I just thought, what a great day that was. You know, I never ever thought like, we have to win or we have to lose or whatever. I just love being on the field and trying to entertain, you know. It's amazing how many people, and it sounds really big-headed, how many people come up to me and say, like, the pleasure I had watching you. If you switch that round and think what pleasure it was watching, what the pleasure must have been to actually do it, you just can't, you can't put it in the words. That makes sense. Yeah. But like sitting in our seats. Yeah. Well, I say you to can't people, do that. You, yeah. you can go in your head, you can follow up Peter Beards that I just told you to and you can think, and you can think about his best day, Martin's best day at football, or my best day at whatever, and you remember the buzz. I remember something from a school hockey game in 40 years ago, but we can't imagine that. That, that well, it, well, sounds just like, 
a brim full of emotions that we've probably never even well, stepped I like, in our Obviously, lives. I go shopping and people stop and talk to me and, and everybody's yeah. really nice and I, obviously I wouldn't change a thing. People will see you talking with these people for 10, 15 minutes because I never walk away from anybody. That's just the way I am. It doesn't mean I'm right, but anyway. And people, the next person I see, say, that must really annoy you. Wow, you're kidding. Lights up my day every day mm. because money can't buy that. You know, the memories they're talking about because nobody ever says, and I really mean this, nobody ever says, wow, what a nightmare you blew the league. They say, what about that goal you scored at Portsmouth or that goal against Brighton or the goal for England when you were on the touchline and you should have crossed and you shot and unbelievable. That's why we're here, that's why both of us were excited coming here because it's, it's quite a privilege to take your, the memories we've got encapsulated of your play and then break them down and open them up. It's like an x-ray of our memories yeah. is what this has been. Well, I, we have a sports scientist, a lad called Simon Twedler, who's a superstar. He's like one of the best you'll ever see. But anyway, he comes to me every day and like, he'll say to me, like, I wasn't happy this morning. Because I'll say something to a player and they just don't get it. And I don't mean that in a nasty way, they just, mm. it doesn't register. And he said, they just don't know what they're listening to. Mm. They just don't get it. They, they just don't understand it. And it really frustrates him. I don't even think about it. Because at the end of the day, you, you say what you think's right, and whether they can take it in or not is obviously a different thing. One of the things I've learned in, in writing and talking about football is the number of footballers of all ages, even footballers of 22, 23, not just footballers, once they finish saying, took me two years for that. To, but the words aren't lost. The, yeah. In the majority of cases, the words aren't bouncing off and falling in the ground and dead. Sometimes they'll go straight in, yeah. sometimes they'll take a few days. Sometimes the benefit is two years later. Yeah. I, you must know that. I know, I've heard people say. One of the best things I ever learned was Teddy Venables, when yeah. he first came in to take over England. And it, two things, he set me right up, but I didn't know at the time. So he rang Kevin Keegan. I'd just come back to Newcastle, so in 93, and Teddy was just about to take over. And uh, he rang Kevin Keegan, and I didn't know this at the time, but he rang Kevin Keegan and he said, I'm going to put him in my first squad. So Teddy Venables said, I'm going to put him in my first squad. Kevin Keegan obviously knew this, Terry McDermott knew this, mm. and my career was over with England, I was finished. Graham Taylor, I'd, not in a horrible way, I'd got rid of me, I, I'm no problem with that, I, I, honestly, I'm not annoyed or whatever. You so and Gary. England, yeah, so my England career was finished. But 94, obviously, Terry Verrill takes over, I've obviously not been back in Newcastle long. And Kevin Keegan said to me one day, he called me in and he said, uh, I think you can get back in the England squad. <laughs> Shut up. But unbeknown to me, Graham, they knew. It was already done. And they said to me, him and Terry Mack, so they're both in the office together, Kevin says, I'll have a £100 bet they'll get back in the office. <laughs> so obviously, £100 to play for England, happy days. And so when he says that, Terry Mack says, I'll have some of that as well. <laughs> so now I'm thinking, nah, they're winding me up here. But I didn't, genuinely didn't think, nah. Think but like. I thought £200, nothing in the scheme of things. But Terry Benham had already told them he was going to put me in the next squad a month later. And wow, they set me right up. They give me my money back. There's a life lesson there, yeah. though. It's like the things to bet on, don't bet, kids. Yeah. Things to bet on are things where you know the result already. That's and the it, safest way to bet. But the thing was, when I first met Terry Venables and the whole squad, for the first time, he actually said, I will tell you what I want you to do, and if you don't understand, come and ask me, and I will explain. But if you don't understand and you don't come and ask me, and you can't do what I'm asking you to do, you won't be coming again. And it was just as simple as that. Charismatic man. Oh, I loved him. Me too. Loved him. He would be as good as I had. Genuinely as good as I had. Yeah. He left me out of Euro 96, but I got no qualms whatsoever. He took Nicky Barmby and said, but 100%, it was the right thing. Gave the country something pretty yeah. special. No, no, that was amazing. 
heck of a yeah. tournament. I was almost hiding behind my pillow when, obviously, the penalties, mm. when they went out. But, yeah, no, a special man, I have to say. No, a lot of time for him. So, Kenny Douglas said that um, when Peter was signed, he had a reputation as a football anorak and couldn't be beaten in any quiz. I'd like to know if Peter was influenced in the style of play by anything in particular that he read about, and if so, what it was. Anything well, influenced I'll tell you, you what influenced me, Kenny Daglish. Growing up, he was my hero. Wow, when he rang me and said, I'd like to sign you for Liverpool, wow. I thought he was winding me up, a bit like the Arthur Cox thing, but mm. not as obvious. And, and to be fair to him, when I went to meet the people at Liverpool, I had no agent, and didn't want an agent, but Sandra and I met him at Powerball, went to a hotel, it was all quiet at the time. Newcastle knew, obviously, there was no, nothing behind anybody's back. But Newcastle gave me permission, went to see him at Powerball, and drove into the hotel, and there was a press man there. And I don't know who the press man was, but that was very unusual in them days. And Kenny said, we might as well just go to Anfield. So I went to Anfield, and I met him, and then I had to go in and meet Peter Robinson mm -hmm. and uh, John Smith, who was the chairman at the time. He actually told me what to say. So I'm going in to meet them and ask for whatever. And obviously he knew I was on £1,200 a week in Newcastle, so I went in to see them. And he said to me, he said, what you need to say is that you're going to replace the manager. You are going to be the new number seven, because it was 1 to 11 then. It's not like any number as it is now. Yeah. He said, you're going to be our new number seven, and you're going to be even better than I was. And this is what he told me to say, and I'm saying, wow. So I walked in this room, Graham, and Sandra was in another room, Kenny was in another room. I walked in this room and I was absolutely crapping myself. So I'm now sat on chairs like you and I are. John Smith and Peter Robinson, they're sitting in the same chairs on the other side of the table. I felt like I was sitting on the floor. I was terrified. And after I started talking, they, not in a horrible way, they were like, we know that. Mm. He's already told us. Mm. You don't need to convince us. And, and it was like the two of them, obviously them two, and him before made it so easy. And he treated me like a king, I have to say. And I'll be honest, Graham, for the first six months, I was horrific. We went 29 games unbeaten, genuinely, 29 games unbeaten, and I was horrific. We played Blackburn in the Capital One Cup, as it is now, and I was horrendous. And in the Daily Star, the next day, and I was poor, got no problem with that, the headline was Peter the Plonker, and that will live with me forever. The good thing was I had no kids, so it didn't matter. It wasn't mm. like the end of the world. But I was called Peter the Plonker by whoever did the art, I couldn't tell you. It's not right. But Kenny was unbelievable and I was with John Barnes and, and John Barnes so was, was John's best. first season as well wasn't it? Yeah yeah absolutely yeah. yeah John had signed a month earlier from Watford but John was the best player I ever played with bar none 100% bar none and for that first two years until he got an Achilles injury was the best player by miles and he was incredible and he made it so easy for me I roomed with him we lived together almost and it was just like unbelievable it really was an incredible time and I was poor I genuinely was poor you know do you know what was going on? I don't. I don't know whether it was living in a hotel. Yeah. Because we lived in a hotel for six months. It's unsettling. Yeah. We, we actually bought Billy Bingham's house. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the former Ireland manager, manager yeah. 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 And uh, it was funny because his wife was brilliant. She was very fair and he was trying to rip us off. And she was like, <laughs> don't worry, we'll sort it out. And, and it was brilliant. Like, but he was a lovely man. And uh, we moved into his house and we were two doors from Kenny. And when I went to buy the house, I went to see Kenny and I said... Is it all right if I move in two doors from you? He said, if you can cope with me being the manager, because I can do what I want. You're a player, you can't do what you want. He said, if you can cope with that, you can move there. And to be fair to him, he was a different class. He never once told me I was poor, but I, I really was. By my own standards, I was poor. And when I look at Robbie Keane going and, and being claimed to be the same, and I don't mean that in a horrible way, I wrote to Robbie to say, like, 
you're not as bad as people say and it'll come good. And Just Andy to be knows, supportive, just to give yeah, him a absolutely. little bit of belief. Absolutely, I've been there. <clears throat> I've been there, you know. Dean Saunders replaced me when I went to Everton and I spoke to Dean and said, you know, don't worry, it'll come good or whatever, you know. And Andy Cowell, when Andy Cowell went there, we saw Andy Cowell. Mm -hmm. Spoke to Andy a few times, you know, it's never as bad as you think. But Kenny was amazing. What clicked for you? I scored on Boxing Day against Coventry at home and we won. Never looked back after that. I scored 17 goals in the second half of the season. Only scored one before that. And I scored 17 goals in the second half. And I couldn't tell you, I couldn't give you one de decisive thing that changed. But it was just incredible how it changed. And, and then, to be fair, the, the scouts were never bad to me. Never once did they. The one thing I always did, and as I said to Jackie Milburn when I first arrived at Newcastle, I'll run around. And that's the one thing I always did. And, and sometimes you can get away with having a bad day by running around. Not maybe as many as I did, but... It was an incredible time and, and I loved every minute of it, even though I was struggling. Was there so much talent around you that you were sort of subconsciously recalibrating what it was you had to do? Because without doubt, you're doing a different thing in a oh, little yeah, side absolutely. full of talent than you have been in an, an, an able, good Newcastle side. But what? I mean, you were being asked to do something new. Yeah, and also I went for officially 1.9 million, but it was officially, well, sorry, officially it was wrong, 1.9 million. But everybody said it was two million for all. And basically, Alan Hansen every day would say, you don't get much for two million nowadays, do you? But not in a nasty way, never nasty, but like almost Mickey taken. And was it worming yeah, around his head a little yeah, bit? Absolutely. I can't argue with that. It would have been. Yeah. You know, and I don't blame Alan, because if uh, the next man in, I'd have said the same. You know, like, Football dressing rooms are meant to do absolutely. that. Absolutely. I think. Yeah. And Alan was a master. And I mean that in a nice way. He was a superstar. He was a. A brilliant, brilliant captain, you know. He really was one of the best players I ever played with. I would only say no Willie Miller, but I'm with you apart yeah, from that. that. I'm with you fair, apart from that, fair. yeah. But he, uh, Alan was different class to be yeah. fair. A brilliant captain, brilliant leader. Looked as though he didn't love the game, but he just had an effortless sort of stride, could glide, he just, he had everything. And he, he was a pleasure to be Hell, a partnership with him and Lawrence. Yeah, him and Laurel. And then we bought Glenn Hussein. Yeah. Big Glenn Hussein and Gary Gillespie, so... Yeah, unfortunately, Loro snapped his Achilles as I arrived mm -hmm. the first year. But Loro, Bruce Grobola in particular, they really took me under the wing. I was really training. Brilliant. Funny, Mickey taken. We had a we had a thing, Graham. When you arrived, we should get trained at Anfield at the time. Mm -hmm. Didn't have the facility at Melwood. But you used to arrive at uh, Anfield, get the bus down to Melwood. But what used to happen? So Ronnie Moran would come up the corridor at Anfield and he'd shout away. And basically then it was a rush to get on the bus. So the reserves were in one dressing room mm -hmm. and the first team were in the other. But if a reserve got in the bus before the first teamer and he was in a seat, he could stay in it. <laughs> Didn't have to get up. Like, so Alan Hansen had to stand if he couldn't be bothered to run on the bus. And it was just the way it was. There was no pecking order. It wasn't like, you're a superstar, I'm a kid. It was just... It's funny how little things can keep the competitive ah, edge going, eh? Ah, keep you on your toes. Honestly, because some people used to, like, didn't want to stand 15, 20 minutes in Melwood. They would be dashing out that door and they'd be fighting, getting out the door and... Uh, but it was just little things, but there were big things because they tested you. You know, we when we won the league my first season, having been horrendous, as I said to you, I scored the winning goal. We beat Tottenham one one nil at Anfield over Easter, and we won the league with seven games to go. And I scored the winning goal, and they said like Beardsley wins the league for Liverpool, mm. which was like couldn't be further from the truth. Take but, it. But the, yeah, you go in the dressing room at the end of the game, and there's medals there, and basically they don't give them out. They were in a box. And Ronnie Moran said, if you deserve one, get one. And I went to pick one up and he said, what are you doing? 
And I brought in a nice way at the time. That's not a nice way no, at the time. All. What are you doing? I said, you don't deserve one of them. And then we laugh about it at the end, but like, wow. Because obviously what he meant by that was if you played your nine games, yeah. and then James, you had to play nine games. You had games, to qualify, didn't yeah. you? And he said, if you deserve one, get one. And obviously I was straight up, never won a medal before. What are you doing? To oh. so turn it on its head then, when that's the mean humour when things are going well. What was it like in that dressing when the penalties missed in the Wembley final against the all-time minnows in the DFA? Yeah. It's not one. What? Horrendous. Yeah, absolutely, because they were the underdogs. Who you says know. what? Who does yeah, what? Yeah, Kenny, to be fair to him, was never really aggressive, but he just said, we've let ourselves down, lads. You know, we should beat Wimbledon. We know that, and if we play them another 99 times in a cup final, we'll beat them. So we said, it's not the end of the world. We've had a brilliant season. We've won the league in, in sort of the middle of the season, as he said. You know, so he says it's not the end of the world. We just go again. We go and to again. be fair, that's what Liverpool did. You know, mm. see you on pre-season, whatever day. When I first went there, we'd have pre-season games. My first pre-season game for Liverpool ever was Bayern Munich away. We lost 5-1. And I was devastated. Mm -hmm. I genuinely was devastated. Nobody else was bothered. And I don't mean that in a horrible way. Ronnie Moran, only thing that matters is the first game at Highbury, which was our first league game. Nothing else matters. So the game was for rhythm, for fitness? Yeah, and... yeah basically getting ready. Everything was geared to getting ready for the first week in August. There would have been Liverpool fans travel, oh, yeah, though, would there? Absolutely, who, who... absolutely. Yeah, I was really surprised being on the outside previously and only just arrived. That's what I'm asking. That he actually said that. Yeah. Yeah, I was gobsmacked. But he said, you know, as long as you're ready for the first game of the season at Highbury. And we won 2 1 at Highbury. Stephen Nicholas scored with a header from the edge of the box. We won 2, no, uh, two 1. So John Oliver scored the other one. Coming after that, that's what we're talking about. Here we go. Let's maybe finish with a, a small smile. This can't be too John Dixon. John Dixon, I attended the same high school as Peter. Longventon High School? Absolutely, it's the right school. Quite Might a few years after he did, the rumour and urban myth that used to go around was that Peter didn't make the school football team. I always wondered if this was true. John? No, to be fair, I never made the county team. So the local county team, I was the pie man, Grim. So what used to happen, we used to play, so obviously you can't see where we are, but imagine you went out of this, you would drive past my house where I used to live, and then about a mile around the road, we used to play in a place called Forest Hall. So it was South Northumberland, and I wasn't good enough to make the first 11. So I used to, like, the county team, so I used to be, like, we used to have three subs in them days, so I used to be the pie man. So at half time, I'd go and get the pies. The pies were probably 500 yards each way to go and get the pies for the, for the players for the end of the game. And then if I was lucky, I might get on for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And I used to, it was good, though, because I used to have a couple of pies on the way back and take me ball on the way, so it was all right. Fergie's got an expression for everything, and Fergie's got an expression for that, which is football, bloody hell. The second last one is Paul McGlone. He's got a YouTube link, which we can't show <clears throat> on audio, but explain the Beardsley Shuffle, it was called, where you could... Mm, yeah, you I already couldn't. Know. It sounds really stupid, Graham. I, I, I got embarrassed one day by Don Howe. Not intentionally. The Beardsley Shuffle now... I watch players do it, and I see players do it, and if you threw me a ball and say do it, couldn't do it. It's just something I did when the ball was in wherever position. It's just something I did. And people now, we have, in our academy, I know for a fact, they try and get kids to do it. But if you ask me now to demonstrate it, I couldn't. I 100% couldn't. But what happened was, Don House, so he was with Terry Venables, and we did, obviously, start off with a warm-up. And obviously, you would do ball warm-ups. And he said, right, now we're going to do the Beardsley Shuffle. Come on, Peter, show us the Beardsley Shuffle. Wow. <laughs> One of the worst days of my life. And I don't mean that in a horrible way. 
I was impressed. <laughs> couldn't do it. Whenever I did it before, full motion, heat of the moment. It, it's, yeah. yeah. Couldn't show you. Light bulbs going Even off in now, your head. And... If you said to me, show me the beers, couldn't show you. That's pretty amazing, eh? I really, honestly, and, and Don tried to get me to do it. And he thought I was taking the mickey. He actually thought I was just being selfish, whatever you want to call it. I'm not going to show you because you might know it and you've used it. It wasn't none of that. I couldn't do well, it. You, you'll, you'll think I'm at it because you've brought me... I said about Messi that there are things he does he couldn't explain. He couldn't show unless it's in that heat of the moment when there's no other way to do it than slalom past six. The last email in is from a nice chap in Barcelona, Graham by name. Graham Hunter. <laughs> Britain's favourite. <laughs> Britain's favourite. We can have you as an audience for that. I like, I like working with you. We can take this on stage. Britain's favourite comedy sketch ever. He's Morecambe and Wise, I don't know if you remember it, in the kitchen together, chopping yeah, up the yeah, grapefruits yeah, yeah. and it's to this, yeah, yeah. it's to da 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 I take you back to playing for Fulham and moving in with the boss. Yes. Being a squatter. Unbelievable. In a flat above Harrods. Incredible. It's alleged that your duties were the cooking. Absolutely. I want to know, what did you cook? What was your speciality dish? And what does King Kevin like the heat of a Thursday night, baked beans on toast or what? I tell you what's the funniest of all, Graham. You, you know London very well, so you know where we are. Night, Knightsbridge, yeah, nice. Unbelievable, honestly, incredible. Obviously, Kevin was the manager. I was a player. Wasn't a coach, I was a player. Yeah. But I had the chance to live with him, so on a Monday morning, we would get the train from Newcastle, so I would get the 6 o'clock train. It would be 6.30 at Darlington, so he got on his Darlington. We arrived into London at 10 to 9, get the tube across London into the training ground, and then that was us for the rest of the week. So training ground, Harrods, training ground, Harrods. So anyway, what happened was, basically, he said, you're in charge of food, Pedro. So I could stay at the training ground all day, and he would have meetings with Mr. Fayed, and But there would be times when, not bored, but I didn't need to be in the meeting or whatever, or I didn't think it was my place, so mm. I would go back. So you know where I am. I was walking along Cromwell Road to Sainsbury's, which is by the Marriott Hotel, 24 hours. On, the red, on yeah, the red yeah. line where the cars was yeah, by. It's right across absolutely. the Marriott. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm going there to get the food, right? So whatever it may be. Um, he liked the steak, so anyway. So obviously I'm doing that. And, and to be fair to him, a lot of times, Graham, it's almost a myth in the sense that we'd just go out. Because where we are in Harrods, you literally go anywhere and have a meal. And I don't mean that in a horrible way. So anyway, we're doing this. But anyway, he said to me one day, he said, Pedro, what's the story with the food? Where are you getting the food from? I said, well, Sainsbury's that we drive past to on the training ground, on the training ground run, on the right, you know, about a mile up the road. You're kidding me. I said, well, not in a horrible way. Where the fuck am I supposed to get it? <laughs> so, anyway, so anyway, he said, I've got a Harrods card. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, you're telling me, I've been there three months, walking up and down this road. <laughs> I've got a Harris card. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Not with two shopping bags and a no, ball. To be fair, I didn't have a ball. This time. I did have the bags. That was when, that was when they give you bags for free. Yeah. But uh, no. You could have so, had caviar on toast every so, night. And... So, to be fair, Graham, every Friday, if we were at home, Sandra would bring my two kids down. So, my two kids at the time, Graham, were probably eight and four or nine and five. So, what she used to do, so my kids went to school in Jasmine in Newcastle. As soon as they come out of school, she used to go across Newcastle, get onto the train, and come down. For that weekend, we would live in the same flat as Kevin Keegan, and he would be doing tricks with my kids. Stupid tricks, like Tommy Cooper tricks, and <laughs> honestly, like, wearing coats, and like, like the old Tommy Cooper trip where you pull the coat, and like, the coat comes off, and your shirt's still on, and wow. Unbelievable. Honestly, did some unbelievable things, and, and just treat them like kings, honestly. But on a Saturday morning, 
we used to go across to Harrods for my pre-match breakfast on Kevin's card. So <laughs> that was about the best thing I got of it. Cornflakes and quail's eggs. To be fair, yeah, no, uh, cornflakes, I wouldn't go for quail's eggs. No, it was bacon and eggs. That for my, for my routine, Graham, for almost 20 years would have been bacon and eggs breakfast. Yeah. No pre-match, bacon and eggs breakfast and orange juice. You haven't done too badly on it. No, no. No, no, yeah. it, I'm eating too many Mars bars now, but apart from that... Yeah, sorry right. about the total, Lauren. It's the biggest compliment I can pay you to say that this has been even more enjoyable than I anticipated. You are a wonderful football man, and football is our living, all of us, and we're damn lucky at it, but to have people like you decorating it and bringing the fun into it is really uplifting. It makes every day better. And uh, this has been a joy and a privilege. Thanks for being so generous. Well, I wouldn't say I've been generous, but probably the first time I spoke to you on the phone, I've been looking forward to it. And I really enjoyed it. I have, honestly, I hope it's been worthwhile for your people that are going to listen. But it's been a pleasure. Apologies to Everton fans, Man City fans, Hartlepool fans. I don't know where else. You never played at Aberdeen. But we will meet again at the camp now in the second leg of the Champions League, Barcelona-Arsenal. Perfect. And with that, Peter Beardsley was off into the northeast afternoon. Grey and drizzly outside. Kind of little football rainbows and golden sparkles inside. I rest my case that that was one of the most interesting, kind, generous, colourful and happy football men I've ever met. Kickstarter helped us bring Peter Beardsley to you. We needed not to be spending out of our own pockets and doing this series at a loss and you generously or well over a thousand of you generously reacted and supported us particularly those who bought into the rewards called shout outs david wilson connor nice and jay barry david connor jay this was your episode hello to all of you thank you for being there for all of us we love the fact that so many of you now 1.7 million of you have shown that you share our taste in the beauty and the fun and the oddities and the eccentricities of football. It's not all about thieving idiots at FIFA. It's not all about people who can't run the game properly, overspending, debt, greed, stupidity. It's about creativity, beauty, dreams, hunger, passion, skill, fun, laughter, memories. I hope, we all hope, Backpage and I, that we're bringing enough of that to you. And without the support of people like David and Connor and Jay, then we wouldn't be here. Plus all of you who contributed, it's very nearly fiesta time. See you in Aberdeen first. Todry, actually. I owe thanks as always to Neil and Martin at Backpage, who co-produced this with me. Their original idea. Ideas are good. Alex, Alex Aidy, as always, looking after us, making sure that this sounds right, feels right, making sure that you can hear it properly. A clever, talented editor. Thank you. Also to Beer Jacket, to all of you. If you enjoyed Peter Beardsley, I can tell you already that in a couple of weeks, the next one is sorted. Leeds fans, Liverpool fans, Scotland fans, even, to be fair, Leicester and Coventry fans, you're going to love this one. Thanks for being with us.